We're going to finish out this morning the book of Habakkuk. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to turn to Habakkuk chapter 3. And you can go ahead and start turning there. I want to give us, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew rack right in front of you. You can pull that out. Turn to the table of contents. Look at the Old Testament and there'll be Habakkuk. And you can turn there and that way you can ride along right with us. Uh, I want to give us a little bit of background while you're turning there so we know what's happening as we head into chapter 3. Now, the beginning of Habakkuk, um, in chapter 1, Habakkuk comes before the Lord, book starts, book opens with him just at questioning God. Okay, what are you doing? I see injustice among your people all over the place. What are you doing? Why aren't you moving, God? And then the Lord responds to Habakkuk and says, don't worry, Habakkuk, I'm going to carry out justice against my people who have rebelled against me. I'm just going to use a people that you would never expect me to use. I'm going to use a people that's actually very brutal people and use them to bring about justice on my people. Well, then Habakkuk asks more questions, right? He says, well, that raises a whole other set of issues. Why are you going to use the Chaldeans or use them? They're, they are a brutal people. And Habakkuk stations himself before the Lord and says, I'm going to wait here for you to answer me. And the Lord begins to answer him again. And as the Lord calls him out and begins to talk about the righteous will live by faith, and then he talks about how, the Lord talks about how the Chaldeans would be judged for their actions against God's people and how they would seek their glory and all the ways they'd seek their glory and how that would come to utter disgrace, but God's glory would go to the ends of the earth. So you think about it, the Lord didn't respond to Habakkuk the way he might have hoped. God didn't come back to Habakkuk and say, you know what, you're right. I should respond that way. Thanks for clearing that up for me. Let me just turn around and respond the way you want me to. God, in effect, said, no, I'm going to work the way that I believe is best, that I know is best, and I'm going to ask you to follow me in the midst of my working. And chapter 3 is Habakkuk's response to the Lord. Now, this, this section, I think, is a great way to be able to respond because what, what do we do a lot of times with our emotion? When, we, when we're emotional about something, um, you know, particularly creative people, you run to a song, right? A song draws emotion. Well, chapter three is a song. It's just like one of the Psalms um, from the book of Psalms. And it's at the very end, you'll see that it's written for music and stringed instruments. The purpose of it is, is to be a song. And, and you think about the songs that draw emotion for you, right? There may be a personal song that draws emotion or draws something out. For us, our oldest son's name is Jude. So in the hospital, all the nurses, when he was born, sang, hey, Jude. And so we, that song is, means something to us different than it means to a lot of other people. There may be something like with, with our sports in high school with basketball. We got to make our mix CD before our warm-up CD, right? Anybody else get to do that? You get to make your mix CD and warm-up. Guess what? We didn't put Mozart on to get all excited before a basketball game. That was back in the day when you started with Rocky's Eye of the Tiger, right? You remember that emotion. Get you pumped up. Get you ready to go. Um, I can name songs like Jingle Bells and Deck the Halls and Hark the Herald Angels Sing and that draws emotions of Christmas, and some of you, you know, there are some of you out there that are immediately going, don't start that train yet because somebody's already ready to start playing Christmas music. That doesn't come until after Thanksgiving, right? There's that reality. We, we, these songs evoke something within us. They don't really resolve everything, but they're our way to express what we're walking through. And so Habakkuk is going to express in chapter 3 to the Lord what he's experiencing 
in this moment, in the back and forth between the Lord. And this is his emotion, his expression. So instead of us reading a little chunk and then explaining it, reading a little chunk, we're going to read the whole thing because it's written as a song. So we're going to read it together and then we're going to come back and look at some, some keys in there. But I want you to see it the way it's written. The way they wrote songs at this point, imagery is everything. So he's going to give a whole lot of images. He's going to play out a whole lot of images. And I want you just to see it in the order of how it was written. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigionath. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Kushan in distress and the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear you pierced his head. When his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding, you trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard, and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord." I will be joyful in God, my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. So you get this vision, right? This picture of what he's walking through and and how he carries this theme and this imagery of the Lord coming and working. See, verse two, we get the whole point of, of all the imagery, right? Why does he give all this imagery? Verse two, Lord, I have heard of your fame and I stand in awe of your deeds. He's reminding the Lord of everything that God has done in the past. Lord, I've I've heard of you. I've heard of what you've done. I know what you did way back here. And what's he going to ask the Lord to do? Renew them in our day and in our time make them known. Okay, God, you worked way back here for your people. This is a day and time where we need you to work again for your people. Work right now, because remember, they're about to be oppressed. They're about to be in bondage. The Chaldeans are going to come at some point and destroy what they have built. And so Habakkuk is saying, Lord, you do again in our day what you did in a previous day. That cry of desperation of, I've got nowhere else to turn, Lord, so I need you to move again. I think we can resonate with that at times. 
in our lives and we say, I don't know what else to do except to know that I've seen you work in the past and I need to see you work again. Lord, I'm at your mercy. You move and renew in this day what you've done before. Notice how he ends verse two. He says, in wrath, remember mercy. If you remember back to chapter one, he started with asking God to bring about justice. Where is your justice? I miss your justice. Justice is perverted. And now in chapter three, he's saying, wait, in your justice or in your wrath, remember mercy. He's asking God to bring both of those together, justice and mercy, perfectly united. He's asking God now to remember that mercy, even as he brings justice on his people. And then he gives the image. And you know what most of this imagery is about? Most of this is evoking back and pushing back to when the, God's people were in Israel. Not Israel, they were in Egypt. They are Israel, the Israelites. When God's people were in Egypt, they were oppressed in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. And God drew them out and led them to a promised land. You see those images at different points. In verse 5, plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. When it talks about the rivers and the streams and the seas, and in verse 10, torrents of water swept by. And in verse 15, you trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. He's leading back to what God did in Egypt to deliver his people. That's why he gives all this vision and clarity of what God had done. Why did God do it? Verse 13, he gives us the why. You came out to deliver your people to save your anointed one. See, his point was, hey, you've worked in the past. You delivered your people. We've seen what you've done. Now you need to do it again and rescue your people one more time. He's just falling before the Lord, begging him to move and giving imagery around what God has done in the past. And then in 16 to 19, we get this picture of what Habakkuk is enduring, what he's feeling, what he's walking through in the midst of all this. And we can compare this to, to where he started in chapter 1. Chapter 1, right? He was so disoriented with the injustice that he saw. Yet he's going to respond differently in 16 to 19. Why does he respond so differently? Let's take a look. Verse 16, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Here's the picture. He knows that God's people are going to be overtaken. He knows there's a day of calamity coming upon them, and he is just weak. He said, my lips quiver. My legs are shaky. My bones within me are broken and decaying because of what's coming. I'm broken, and I've got nothing left, and I'm hurting, and I'm grieving about what's going to happen. Lord, I have nothing left. See, here's what we need to see. From chapter 1 to chapter 3, Habakkuk's circumstances didn't get better. In many ways, they got worse. Because he didn't know that this judgment was coming by the Chaldeans until later. And now that he knows that, he knows the circumstances are going to be really brutal and difficult. And yet, he doesn't stop in verse 16 right there with everything is frail, my legs are trembling, my decay has crept into my bones. What does he say? Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. And again in verse 17 he gives the picture. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God my Savior. 
The sovereign Lord is my strength. See, he changed his tune. He's, he's been disoriented at the beginning, and now he's been reoriented to, to who God is. And you want to know why his perspective has changed? Because his circumstances sure didn't. We see several things of what he did. One, he put his gaze on the Lord and not on his circumstances. Does that make sense? Look, hey, verse 17, he has everything around him has still failed. But verse 18, I'll rejoice in the Lord. Why? I'll be joyful in God my Savior. He's responding to the character of God and saying, I can't look at all the circumstances around me because I am weak when I look at those. But when I look to you, I find that you are my sovereign Lord and you are my strength. See, this image, that I use it all the time, but I think it's so true. When, when our kids were little infants, little babies, and we would hold them, there's a point in time where their eyes lock onto yours, and no matter what is going on around them, they do not let go, right? That gaze is still locked onto you. Our other kids could be running around like crazy in chaos. You'd think the house was falling down, and this little baby doesn't change their gaze because they know who has their security in their hands. See, the question was not as much for that infant is not why. Why is it chaotic? Why is this happening? Why are these noises around me? Why is all this going on? The question was, no matter what the why is, I need to know the who. Who do I look to and who is in control and who is in charge? And that little baby locks their eyes with yours and they know the who and nothing else really matters. They will still be affected by circumstances, but the who became more important than the why. Or the image of, of Peter, whenever he was in the boat with the other disciples and Jesus walked across the water towards them, and Peter says, Lord, let me come out to you on the water. Let me walk out to you. And Jesus says, okay, come on. Peter walks out to him, begins to walk towards him. And what does the passage say? The passage goes on to say that um, as Peter walked out to, towards Jesus, he looked and saw the wind and the waves and he began to sink and he cried out for Lord, said, Lord, save me. When he was locked on the Lord, upon Jesus, then he could walk on the water because he, he knew the who. When he stopped focusing on the who and started focusing on what was going on around him and why things were happening around him, he began to sink. You feel that way sometimes? You get, we get so caught in the circumstances that we miss being locked on the who and then we begin to drown. Happens all the time. But see, he wouldn't just focus on the who. And he knew what the what. Jesus was going to be about, what the Lord was going to be about, right? He knew the end result. One of the realities of when he talks about in verse 18, that I will be joyful in God, my Savior. This aspect of Savior, this is um, speaking yes to the immediate moment, the immediacy of what the people are walking through. They need God to move to free them from the Chaldeans at some point in the future as that's going to happen. But there's also a much bigger picture that he knows the end, that this is the God who's going to save me in the end. God, my Savior, he knows the end of what's happening. Here's a picture of that. When I was a little boy, my dad and I went to a water park, and I wanted to go down one of those big tube slides, you know, where you cross your arms and legs, and you go all the way, you, you spiral around for a while, and then you get to the bottom. And you got to walk up that tower, and we waited in line forever and walked up that tower, and there's, you get about as high as you want to go, and then you go another 15 feet, and you're at the top of those things. 
Well, we got to the top, and my dad's plan was for him to lay down and kind of put me in his lap a little bit, and we were going to take off down this thing. Well, when we got to the top, the people said, no, that ain't happening. Said, little guy's got to go first. My dad turned around, looked at the stairs, and thought, our options are I can turn around and walk back down those things, which I don't know how we're going to get down, or we can go down quickly. And we opted for going down quickly. Well, he sent me first. And then he got in and he went down that tube. I talked to him about it this week. It evoked all the same emotions. I asked him about it again. And he said, I was terrified. I knew I had killed you. (laughs) He said, water was splashing up all in his face and he was drowning. And he said, I knew I had just killed you. When I, he's like, when I come out of that bottom, I knew what was going to happen was you were going to be drowned somewhere. And what happened when he came out? I'm jumping up and down over here going, let's go again. But he didn't know the end. And what happened in the middle was chaotic. But I can tell you, if we rode that ride again, it would not have been the same ride for him because he knew the end. And for you and me as followers of Jesus Christ, can I tell you, we know the end. We know how the story ends. We don't have to worry about what happens in the end. As God has said over and over again, I'm working out my glory for my story. And in the end, anyone who would follow after my son, I'm going to call them my own. And your eternity is secure. So you don't have to worry about what happens in the middle. You can rest assured that your middle, all those things that happen as you come down that slide of life and you're trying to figure out what's what, you can trust me because I have secured your end. And it changes the way we live in the middle. It changes it. Now the reality is, it's easy to think about that in terms of going down a water slide. It's really hard to think about it in the depths of the moments that we experience that are incredibly painful, that we don't understand the why. Just this week, a family of five who are going to be missionaries on the other side of the world were headed to their last training session before they got ready to leave. And in that, in that moment of heading to that last training session, their lives were taken in a moment all five of them. And you step back and you go, why, God? They were going to go serve you on the other side of the world. What are you doing? That's the emotion that Habakkuk would have been feeling here. All the people are about to be oppressed and crushed and broken, and I've got nothing left. My bones within me are decaying because the grief is so heavy. You know what his response was there and the only response we can give? Lord, I'm going to turn to you. I'm going to look to you, and I've entrusted the end to you and you alone. Because those moments, if we look at the circumstances in and of themselves, they will lead us astray from the Lord because we don't understand. It is entrusting him with the end that we can endure the in-between and we can walk through the in-between. See, Hebrews chapter 11, we talked about it a little bit the first week. But Hebrews chapter 11, some other verses in verse 13 to 16, it points out uh, where all these people who had lived by faith, it's going to give a description of how they did that. Verse 13, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. 
they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Did you catch that? They didn't even get the full promise in their lifetimes. But it wasn't that they were expecting the full promise in their lifetime. The promise was something bigger and greater than what they could have received within their earthly lives. And so they looked beyond it and they knew the end and they were able to endure in the middle because of what they saw at the end. Are we trusting the Lord with the end so that we can live the way he longs for us to live in the middle? Because here's the reality. The, the, another feature of this is looking at the eternal instead of the temporal, right? The temporal, the temporary, the things that we live here on earth. Because here's what we want God to do. We want God to use his eternal power to secure our temporal conditions. And God wants to use our temporal conditions to point us to his eternal nature and eternal power. Does it make sense? Here's the picture. We want him to use his eternal power to secure our temporal conditions. God, my job isn't going very well. You are big enough. You are powerful enough. I need you to make sure that you secure this thing so that it works just right. Lord, we've got, we're going to the doctor today. You are big enough. You are powerful enough. You've got to move and do this now because if you don't move, I don't know what's going to happen And he longs for us to cry out to him in those ways, but understanding that he may respond differently because his primary goal is not our temporal condition, it's an eternal one. And how many of us, he wants to use our eternal conditions to point us to his eternal nature and for our eternal, our temporal conditions to help others be pointed to his eternal nature. That picture, when we came to Christ very Few of us came to Christ when life was just wonderful. Most of us endured something difficult. And God used that circumstances to draw us to himself. Or maybe you wandered away from the Lord and he used difficult circumstances to draw you back. The Lord is using those circumstances in our lives to point us to him so that we may be moving toward the eternal and not just the temporary. You think about your life. When have you grown the most in your faith with the Lord? More often than not, it's not in the great moments, it's in the hard moments. Now, if the Lord's ultimate goal was our temporary condition, then it wouldn't, he wouldn't be very loving to let us endure broken moments. But if his goal is eternal and much bigger, then he allows us to endure some broken moments so that we can be pointed to him and who he is and in turn help others point to him. See that difference? is not about what happens immediately in this moment. It's about what God's doing on a much grander scale. So here's the pictures. We've walked through the book of Habakkuk, right? He's been disoriented. And now God's reoriented him back. He didn't change his circumstances. He just helped change his heart to see what is accurate and right and true. And it's these small books That as we read them and we look at them back in the Old Testament, we begin to see how the character and nature of God is working. Because what we do is we we think about it, we go, I want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, and and I think that means that everything should be wonderful. Right? We, We don't really say it that way, but that's what we really believe. And yet if we look at at what God has called the, the prophets to, like Habakkuk, they endured 
difficult circumstances. If we look at what Jesus endured, he endured difficult circumstances. If we look at what the disciples endured, they endured difficult circumstances. It is, there is no reason for us to be able to look up and say, yeah, God, I think you ought to make it perfect for me. That's not his goal. His goal is working for ultimately, as Habakkuk said in chapter two, his glory, and we'll find our greatest joy in that. We don't need to get disoriented when life doesn't work the way we expect it to because Jesus told us it wouldn't, right? If you go back and read what Jesus told his disciples, he said, hey, take up your cross daily and follow me. That doesn't sound like a, like a, a merry-go-round. It sounds difficult. In Matthew 24, when Jesus is talking about the end of all things and when those things are going to happen, one of the things that he says is that at some point, all nations will hate my people. Not just a few, all of them. So that when we look at the conditions that are around us, when we begin to, to wonder and doubt and look and fear and concern at the circumstances we're facing, we can look up and say, you know what? This is nothing new. Habakkuk endured difficult circumstances. God's people endured difficult circumstances. Jesus endured difficult circumstances along with his disciples. We can endure them because like those of Hebrews chapter 11, this is not our home. We're looking for something greater and something further and find our security there and not here. See, Romans 8 makes a comparison that, that is hard for me to even fathom. It talks about that if, that if we have known Christ, we are children of God. And if we're children of God, we're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ that if we share in his suffering, we will also share in his glory. And then it goes on to talk about that Paul says that um, I don't compare the present circumstances or I don't compare our current sufferings with the glory that is to come, the glory that is to be revealed in us. See, what he just says, I don't compare all the suffering that I endure in this life to compare that to the glory that's to be revealed in us through Jesus Christ at the end of all things. It is simply a blip on the radar compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. I don't know about you, but I've experienced some hard, heartbreaking grief where I feel the moments that Habakkuk was speaking of where I feel like my bones are decaying from the inside out. For God to say that that is going to be a blip on the radar compared to the glory that's to be revealed is a promise I hold on to all the time. This is not our home. This is not our anchor. This is not what we hold on to. We look beyond this to what God is doing going forward for all of eternity. So like Habakkuk, we can end. We can sing a song of praise regardless of what we face that through everything we endure, our eyes can be fixed on him and we can end the same way he ends. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and he enables me to go on the heights. Our eternity is secure in Christ. Because the reality is that Christ has secured much more than just the freedom of his people from another oppressive people, right? We've been disoriented because of our sin, because of our rebellion to God. And in the midst of that, God sent his son to bear the full weight of his judgment so we could bear the full weight of his grace and mercy so that we could then live with him for all of eternity. And we can celebrate as people who are reoriented to the character and nature of God. 
So we get to celebrate. Even as we cry out, even as we land on our face before the Lord saying, God, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know why you're doing it. I can't understand what's happening in this moment, but I am trusting you. And if we would be a people who trust God through all circumstances, the name of the Lord would scatter to the ends of the earth. His glory would be known because his people endured for his name's sake and we'd be fulfilled by the joy of him and him alone. We know the who and that carries the why. We know the end so we can endure the in-between and our hope is in the eternal and not the temporary. Yeah, celebrate that, that's right. Our hope is in the eternal. We above all people ought to be the most joyful people in what we face. Not happy. It's not talking about a fake happiness. I'm talking about a joy. The joy being that no matter what we face, nothing can take our security in the Lord away. And that should give us the greatest joy of anything we could have possibly endure. So we're going to pray here in a moment and then we'll just respond to the Lord in a song. But if you don't know Christ this morning, if you're just simply walking in that rebellion of him and not sure what it looks like to be reoriented to who he is, our pastors would love to talk to you about what that means to believe and trust in Jesus Christ. We'll be here on the front or you may feel that the Lord is calling you to join this church and be a member of this church. We'll be here to talk to you about those things. You may simply need to come and kneel before the Lord and say, hey, I have been focused on the temporary and I need you to reorient my life to be focused on the eternal where I can look to you. Or again, you may just need to sing to the Lord saying, God, I am broken in this moment and I just need to sing what is true and reflect back to you what I know to be true about you because in the depths of my soul right now, it doesn't feel that way. And you just need to be reminded of those truths. Whatever that looks like here in a moment, you respond to the Lord.